Mr. Goldsmith, if you please. Welcome to the Goldsmith Odyssey, our chronological journey through the works of Jerry Goldsmith. I'm David. I'm Clark. And I'm Yavar. And we have a returning special guest host tonight, uh, Jeff Bond. Welcome back to the program. Extra returning. (laughs) Right. Yes. Thank you for having me. You're returning again. Back and back and back. Yeah, this uh, feels a little bit more like the Twilight Zone than Thriller, actually. (laughs) Yeah, so this is our take two of this recording session, and uh, thank you, Jeff, for being willing to come back again. I know you don't have quite as much time with us this time, so uh, we'll try well, and... Well, let's just see how charming you guys are, and we'll see how much time I have. Uh, okay. Oh, my goodness. Well... Sounds great. In a 43-day span on television, one would have seen Thriller the Cheaters, Twilight Zone, Dust, Thriller the Poisoner, Twilight Zone Back There, Twilight Zone The Invaders, Gunsmoke, Love Thy Neighbors, and at the end of those 43 days, tonight's episode, Hayfork and Billhook, all starting December 27th, 1960 and ending on February 7th. So seven scores that's in one a, intense workaholic period. Good heavens, yes. And if you know you want to talk about, and since he, in theory, recorded a lot of these scores pretty close to the air dates or certainly close to the production dates. It's a lot of work back to back to back to back to back. You know, you go to the end of the month before Well of Doom, his next one. So maybe, you know, one of the reasons Hayfork and Bill Hook is so rich and lavish is, I mean, he was basically doing his Beatles M. Hamburg leading right into it, you know, just kind of going and going and going. Yeah, it's funny. He didn't do any of the hour long Twilight Zones, which are not as well remembered, I think, as the normal half hour ones. Yeah, it's interesting that he wound up then doing this show that where the they were hour long episodes. I think by this point, you know, which is still pretty early in his career, but I, I would have to assume that, you know, he was completely fearless and there was nothing like a, you know, writer's block that would even occur to him because he had done uh, live television. He had done so much live television where he would be sitting, <laughs> you know, on stage and might have to come up with a whole piece of music because they forgot something or, right. or you know, he was constantly making changes and had to conduct live to accompany live actors. I mean, it's not completely invented out of whole cloth because people would do that for theater. Mm-hmm. Alex North, you know, would, would write scores for theater, but, uh, you know, Goldsmith never, to my knowledge, did any theatrical work. I think he had good training for a lot of this too, having started his career in the realm of radio. There were a lot of people who worked in radio in the 40s and 50s who then made the transition to the early days of television. In radio, so much of it was done live. The stuff that wasn't done live was done in a very short period of time pretty frequently. There wasn't a whole lot of time for rehearsals or 
in-depth preparation. So I have to imagine that was a great way for him to kind of cut his teeth and, and get ready for working at a high level on deadlines like that. They weren't giving him weeks to come up with a radio score. He was no. probably, you know, doing that in an afternoon. Yeah. So his work ethic and his just capabilities as a composer by the early 60s, you know, were already top notch and he could just crank this stuff out. Another thing, Jeff, you talked about live TV and compared it with theater, but the theatrical experience is there are going to be rehearsals and rehearsals and rehearsals, and then the thing is going to be performed a number of times. Mm -hmm. Goldsmith doing live TV, there were barely rehearsals, and it got done once. Yeah. It was really much more on the fly even than your Alex North piece would have been. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a, a play, you're going to be doing it night after night, right. and probably doing rehearsals you know, during the day. So, yeah, so many great directors and writers came out of live television and it just was, you know, a crucible uh, for talent where you either were brilliant getting into that or you didn't do it for, you know, more probably more than once. Yeah. Uh, anybody who could not do just about anything probably did not last for more than one episode of live television because the pressure uh, and the type of talent that you were working with were just so tremendous. In Playhouse 90 in particular, I think he established a lot of his later director relationships, such as John Frankenheimer, who he worked with on Seconds. Yep. And Schaffner. Oh, yeah. And Playhouse 90 was a, basically, it was a live filmed play. It was like a feature length show that it was 90 because it was 90 minutes. And these were done live. So basically, he was scoring live plays as just ones that were filmed for television as well. But I just have to imagine his collaboration with Schaffner or Frankenheimer on these was probably a lot closer than they would have been later for the filmed episodic television in the 60s, which then had like a post-production period when I think lots of times he maybe wouldn't be working directly with the directors of those episodes. But when it comes to Playhouse 90 or Climax or all that kind of stuff, he was actually having the music performed live there. And so he must have had to work very closely with the directors on those projects in the 50s. Yeah, and also between radio, live television, and Twilight Zone and Thriller, the, all of it was all anthologies. He was doing a different story, a different cast and characters every week. So he had to completely kind of reinvent himself for each of these scores. You couldn't just say, well, you know... Uh, Gilligan's in every episode, you know, <laughs> right. so I'm going to just use Gilligan's theme. You couldn't really kind of bring anything from the previous work, so you're always starting from scratch. So that, you know, I think that was a great foundation for creativity because, you know, you had to be able to come up with something great week after week that was going to be completely different from what you just did. It's funny that he actually did have experience scoring pilot episodes before Kane's 100 and Dr. Kildare, but they were ones that were bad and never went to series. So he got to establish like main thematic material, but it never came to be developed in subsequent ones on um, the Sergeant and the Lady. And uh, what was the other one? Man on the Beach. Man on the Beach, yeah. <laughs> I think the first time he had the opportunity to score the pilot episode of a show and then kind of develop that thematic material he established in that 
pilot score in subsequent ones. Maybe it was um, Kane's Hundred. Mm-hmm. And then also Dr. Kildare later this year, 1961. Yep. But it, before that, it was almost exclusively either anthology shows or shows where he hadn't established the musical sound like Perry Mason. He did a couple of those, yep. but there was no consistency between those two scores. Yeah, Perry Mason was more like an anthology show because even though you had Perry Mason and his secretary and the detective... There was a cast that was the same every week, but the focus was really on the characters in the case. It was more like an anthology. It was a different story every week. We noted that also with Gunsmoke, Jeff, and also, I really, I mean, Have Gun Will Travel, at least the episodes he did, were very similar. Yeah. He must have really been just sort of kicking back and, you know, when he's on Kane's 100 and like, I love, yeah, Kane's 100 I think is fantastic. That's another one that, you know, was oh, one yeah. of John Burlingame's favorites. But it is kind of like all the same based around versions of that theme. It's almost all kind of the same feel. And he probably was literally able to do that in his sleep by the time he'd done all this stuff, you know, to actually get in a show where it's, wow, I can actually just riff on <laughs> this key piece of material week in and week out that was something that was just incredibly easy for him yeah he had a chance there to develop a musical character in a way yeah which must have been nice for him yeah a nice change of pace from all of the you know have to reinvent yourself every weekend kind of thing yep if you think about what goldsmith's reputation is why people love him it is that whole idea of reinvention that he was able to come up with so many different styles. Somebody, uh, I think Tim Grieving was just posting on Facebook researching Goldsmith and found his <laughs> New York Times obituary where the last sentence is just like, uh, he, well, Goldsmith was known for having no <laughs> developed no uh, identifiable style. <laughs> oh. oh, my. It was one of the most condescending things I've ever read. And if you just maybe talk to some man in the street, maybe that would be the only notion that they had of this guy is that they couldn't really key in on exactly what his sound was. Whereas everybody, I think, would know what John Williams' sound was or Henry Mancini's sound was, even though those guys could all do all sorts of different things. Sure. But they weren't known for that. And Goldsmith, I think, was was known for being very protean and kind of reinventing himself on every score. So that does seem like something that goes back to this foundation in all these anthology shows and live television. And, you know, that's kind of the reaction I've gotten from a lot of people who aren't necessarily really big film music fans. Uh, When I talk about doing this podcast and mention that it's devoted solely to the works of Jerry Goldsmith, so on and so forth. They kind of tend to be, so So why him, of all people? I mean, he seems good, yeah. the stuff I've heard, yeah, but why Why Jerry Goldsmith, exactly? And of course, that's when I start evangelizing, but that kind of seems to be the impression uh, a lot of people outside of this little circle that the four of us are in tend to have of him, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I think it's another sort of part of his reputation. He's sort of a little bit underappreciated. Goldsmith, in a weird way, looked up to composers like Mancini and John Barry. And I think there was probably some kind of acknowledgement that those guys and John Williams got into a kind of a realm that Goldsmith occasionally got into, but never was there all the time. He was so prolific and did so much work and, you know, maybe worked too much in a way it wasn't maybe as picky about the movies he did. So a lot of the movies didn't become as well known. This 
is the Satan bug. A gathering of eagles. Rent a cop. See, take her, she's mine, and have a ball. Link, man is no longer in control. Warning shot. 100 rifles. Bandolero means big star adventure. Gregory Peck. In the chair. The Salamander. The town is Cabo Blanco. Inchon, rated PG. From the producers of Superman, Alexander Solkind presents Supergirl. If you liked what Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould did to the United States Army in MASH, <laughs> wait till you see what they do to the CIA. CIA? As spies. My career was unblemished until this. Mom and Dad Save the World. The film which opened nationwide on over 1,000 screens. A cross between Saturday Night Live, Little Shop of Horrors, and the Keystone Cops. Mr. Baseball. Here you go. Collect them, trade them. And no sitting on my face. Um, he could certainly achieve pieces of music that were as iconic as the works of those other composers, but not as many of them. Right. I think you could probably point to just maybe a handful of things he did where a man on the street would, if you <laughs> laid the groundwork, they would recognize, oh yeah, that Chinatown, I know what that is. It would be like Star Trek, maybe in the old days, Dr. Kildare. I don't know, the Waltons or something like that. The Waltons. Patton was a huge one for a while, but that, I think, not, you know, to someone now, anybody under 50 or 40 who's not a nerd <laughs> doesn't know what that film is and doesn't know what that music is. He's more, I mean, I don't want to say an acquired taste, but I guess that is what he is. He's a well-kept secret or something yeah, like that. He's more esoteric than a lot of these other composers. But here's the thing, you can count on him to be discovered. It's very hard to find reviews of Planet of the Apes, the 1968 movie, that do not mention the music, mm -hmm. and The Omen, and Chinatown, and Patton. And you could look at certain films, and any review you find jumps out and says, Goldsmith's score is really quite marvelous, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, for The Omen, it's easy. But for some of those, it's interesting how consistently it happens. And if you have a Planet of the Apes fan club, fan group, they're going to know his music. Yeah. Yeah, I think for people who like science fiction movies, he's well-known. He's probably well-known to a certain segment of people who like suspense and or action movies that you know he hit so many genres. He certainly had a great reputation for doing music for military subjects. I remember the director of the Last Castle, you know, was interviewed saying, you know, he was going to do this movie and he was like, well, who's the greatest composer of military music in the movies? It, you know, it's Jerry Goldsmith. He is known to people, but it's a more specialized knowledge, I think. Right. It's not the man on the street. This was a particularly busy period of time for Jerry. So this is the first score he did for Thriller after he had finished working on Twilight Zone and The Invaders, which we discussed with you last time you joined us. 
So why did you pick this one to join us on? Well, I think this was probably the first um, thriller episode that I watched knowing that it had been scored by Jerry. And I, I don't actually remember whether I stumbled across it halfway through or something and, and realized, oh boy, this is a great score. And I know Goldsmith did some of these. I had a much more distant relationship with thriller than with Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, I grew up with I saw all the episodes and kind of went back and you know I bought all the original Verez Saraband albums to get the scores that I knew from those and then sort of later on I knew that Goldsmith had worked on Thriller as well as uh, obviously many many other television shows but Thriller was not like in syndication anywhere when I was growing up and I never thought for the first few decades of getting into Goldsmith's music that I'd ever have the opportunity uh, to see the show because I don't know that it was on home video in the 80s or whenever I started kind of getting into this stuff. But uh, it runs here in Los Angeles and I realized it was on and I think that I'd started to watch this episode and wound up talking to John Burlingame about it. John, of course, is a great expert on television music and has written books about it. I think I mentioned this and he immediately said that, you know, that was his favorite thriller score by Goldsmith and that it was fantastic. And so I searched it out so I could see the whole episode. Thriller, you know, it started off as just kind of a crime show with his theme music by Pete Rugolo, who did The Fugitive. And that music stayed on the show, but the show itself kind of evolved into a more supernatural show with ghosts and Jack the Ripper and murderers and monsters and it was obviously something that followed the twilight zone it was an anthology show like the twilight zone there were probably expectations for something hosted by boris karloff called thriller you know that didn't <laughs> necessarily relate to crime right they were expecting something more horror yeah, because yeah. of his genre experience so they made it into more of a twilight zone like show and to me like listening to goldsmith scores for thriller they were done almost right on the heels of the work that he did for twilight zone and his twilight zone scores are iconic and kind of established him i think in a way as the kind of go-to guy for suspense and weirdness and thriller seemed like a next step in that you know the the episodes were an hour long yeah he got a bigger canvas yeah he, they, they, he got to write longer scores and to me they seem more developed fuller pieces of music in a way a little bit more cinematic than the the twilight zone scores which always seem very kind of chamber oriented and little kind of vignettes that were brilliant but you know they didn't have this kind of scope the thriller did well, and he had just gone freelance. His last three CBS Twilight Zone scores were all freelance. He wasn't under contract at that point. Mm -hmm. He had just gone contract free, so he's got a reason to make himself stand out. And then with Thriller, his direct supervisor, River, was really in charge of the music who he answered to. He said, that guy gave us complete creative freedom. Whatever we wanted to do, we could do. So put those two things together, and what a great space to be in. And he was starting to do movie scores like Freud, you know, get, getting an Academy Award nomination for Freud and doing uh, Lonely Are the Brave and starting to get noticed by Alfred Newman and all these great studio music heads. 
I remember that it was Alfred Newman who recommended him from Lonely or the Brave based upon his work for Thriller specifically. At least that's what I've come to understand. And he had just completed his last Thriller score earlier that same year that he scored Lonely or the Brave. Yeah, and if you listen to these Thriller scores, you could certainly imagine, oh, this guy could probably do a pretty good movie. This sounds like a movie score, for, you know, particularly of, of that period. So a thriller, I think he got to do a little bit more world building. That's something I really love about his music. And in this episode in particular, he's exploring this ancient druid culture. And it's an episode that's not overtly supernatural. There's sort of a supernatural element in it, but it's more about culture and kind of evil being inherent in a culture. And I think that's a really cool idea. I, I associate the score with a couple of other things he did in the early 60s or mid-60s. One in particular is the list of Adrian Messenger, which is set in the United Kingdom. It's a black and white weird movie with a bunch of famous actors and, you know, bizarre makeups to disguise them for this kind of big gimmick. And Jerry's original fox hunt hue yeah. long before the final conflict. Yeah, exactly. He wrote this really strange, almost kind of jocular theme for it. And Kirk Douglas is the villain in it. And he has a great line where people don't realize that he's the villain of the piece and they're sort of discussing the nature of evil and Kirk Douglas says just that, you know, evil exists, evil is. And Goldsmith, to me, was a composer who excelled at kind of exploring the dark side of people, the dark side of the universe, you know, everything from murderers and monsters and killers to, you know, people obsessed about things and weird cultures and just twisted ideas. And so he kind of carried forward from his work on The Twilight Zone into Thriller and exploring all these kind of weird ideas in this show. And it's amazing. You know, we talk a little bit about what a diverse composer Jerry Goldsmith is and how he could tackle any genre and do anything. But even within the realm of horror and suspense, he approaches that from so many different angles. I mean, poltergeist... Nothing like the omen. Which is nothing like the other. Which is etc. 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 And it's just extraordinary how many different ways he found to explore different kinds of darkness. Even among his output for Thriller, there's a, actually a wide amount of variety, despite, you know, writing for similarly small orchestras and the like. Mm -hmm. But if you compare yours truly, Jack the Ripper... ...with this... ...with the cheaters... Each one has its own kind of distinctive flavor. He writes a kind of standout main theme for each of them, and that kind of creates the score's unique identity. But there's also, you know, kind of contrary to what Jerry said in that interview with John Burlingame, 
so far, each one has had kind of its own instrumental identity as well. So that's that's kind of another interesting element of it. They each feel of a piece and kind of unique to the short film that they're accompanying. Yeah, they each create their own kind of little world and their own little universe. And, you know, the show always ended with uh, these kind of end credits. And there always seemed to be a, a very well-developed piece of thematic material that could function as a, a kind of ending over that made every episode distinct because every episode had its own unique piece of music that it ended on. And they were never written specifically to be an end credits piece. They were appropriated from earlier in the score, but it's almost as if Jerry knew that something was going to be appropriated because it seemed like on most of his episodes, there was a cue that was virtually the perfect length that would seem to work for the end credits that was usually a straightforward statement of the unique theme for that week. Yeah, he had more breathing room in this. And there are Twilight Zone episodes that do have fully developed themes, like, you know, the Big Tall Wish. But Jerry said in another interview with John Burlingame that the way he was able to generate so much material and crank out scores for these television shows so fast was that he would usually just find a short motif and use that and do kind of endless variations on that and just play around with this very short piece of material as opposed to blowing through a long line theme in a lot of these shows. But he was still more than capable of and seemed to really enjoy writing a full-fledged theme. And he was able to do that with this episode. It seems like he would never do more than one per episode, but... There was one memorable one each time. Like, The Cheaters has another really great one. You know, he had a very, um, I don't want to say doctrinaire, but he had a very kind of disciplined approach to generating music, which he always said was that he created, you know, this kind of core piece of material and everything kind of came out of that, whether it was motifs or rhythmic material or even different short fragmentary themes for people or situations. It all came out of this longer material that he would write. And he, you know, he said, uh, you know, he would strive to not just come up with basically a like a light motif idea where, you know, you have distinct, unrelated themes for individual characters. He wanted to have everything related to his core piece of material, because he said, you know, if it's not from that core piece of material, then what's it doing in the score? It's not organic to the score as a whole if it's not derived from his core piece of material. I think everything that you hear in this score, particularly given that there's such a you know extended melody, it's all laid out for you in the opening. You know, you hear this theme for this old man. You know, it's associated with him. This kind of melancholy, but very like kind of culture-related, specific theme for this region and these people. And then there's this kind of horn pitch bend which you first see these kind of stonehenge like ruins that this sound is played over and that creates this weird feeling that there's something strange about these ruins it's a kind of ancient sound i'm not sure if this is the first instance we've encountered this kind of pitch bending horn idea in jerry's work thus far but it would eventually become an outright staple in his work. It's got a huge presence in what might be my favorite of his 90s scores, The Shadow, mm -hmm. but also other ones he did at the time, like um, 
I think in our first recording, you brought up the edge, right? Yeah, That well, this is 63, right? This is 61, sir. Oh, 61. Okay, so yeah, that's what I, I was wondering of whether this was the first real extensive use of the eye. He obviously uses it in Freud. I think he uses, I mean, he uses some kind of pitch bending effects. I don't know if it, with horns, but he, in at least couple of the Twilight Zone scores. I guess I'm thinking of the flute, glissando, and Nervous Man in a $4 Room. And he did a Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea score in 65, where he just uses that horn pitch bend as a bumper. So there's nothing but that that plays, you know, in between uh, commercials. And then, you know, he uses in the Planet of the Apes, you hear it in the, the Monument and Logan's Run. To me, The Edge is, given how late it came in his career, is really near the end of his career, but it's one of the most effective uses of that. It shows that he could play with that idea for decades, really across the entire span of his career, and still find a way to use it in a major movie release and really unnerve audiences with it. I, I you know, remember seeing that movie and this big horn bend would happen whenever the, this giant bear was around and it was as effective as the you know motif in Jaws, which was something Goldsmith was often asked to imitate. This is something he did reluctantly, but it shows that he could do something completely different from that, that you know, it was just his hair raising. All those sequences with the bear and the edge are just really frightening and unnerving, partly because of this giant, you know, Bart the Bear animal performer and the way it's shot. But the music is a huge factor in how frightening and exciting those scenes are. And, and it's also very effective in the shadow because it puts across this whole idea of hypnosis as you know, one of the key ideas for the villain in the movie is that the villain is hypnotizing everyone in Los Angeles to imagine that some whole hotel has disappeared. A lot of that is put across in the music. So it's, it's such a simple effect, but it seemed to have just kind of countless permutations and uses for Goldsmith. Look, before these particular uses, we really heard this kind of a note bend primarily in the slide whistle, which was exclusively for comedy. Right. That would really be the only place we would have heard it on television or in popular film. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I would have to think maybe Herman used it somehow in some of his scores, but I couldn't tell you where it was done. And I, I feel like Goldsmith, I feel like, couldn't have invented it, although he may have invented this kind of specific way that it's used with horns. I would imagine if Herman did it, it would be a much thicker sound, you know, that you would be hearing from a huge brass section instead of the solo horns. It might even harmonize. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's another interesting thing about this score is there's lots and lots of brass effects, a lot of ones that you would probably expect to be heard from like muted trumpets or like higher range brass. But he's able to get, you know, really wide range of effects across just uh, with horns. There's one other idea I want to briefly bring up, which I feel is kind of a dominant identity in this score. And that is the two notes on a triple rhythm that he does a lot. The dun, 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 dun. But the interesting thing is that rhythm, so it's, it's three beats, but the, it's two notes. And the first note lasts through the first two beats. And then you've got the shorter note. 
it goes throughout the entire score in a lot of different guises. The main theme sometimes plays without that rhythm, but sometimes it plays with the rhythm in a kind of upbeat way, and it's kind of a skipping rhythm. And, you know, dun, 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 dun. But other times, it's used in some of the most, you know, dark and guttural action music, and you get, you know, boom, boom, boom. But, you know, on the low bass, and it's in an entirely different feel, but it's still a consistent idea throughout the whole score, all the way to the final cue, when it has a fairly different kind of guise of relief, almost, at the very end of the score. And so, it's so interesting how malleable that idea, which is really more of a rhythmic idea than a thematic idea, like you said earlier, you brought up kind of a dance rhythm. I think it's kind of playing into that, and it doesn't always feel like a dance, I guess, you know, overtly, but it has such different characters throughout the course of the score, and it's so permeating. We talked about this a little bit in the previous recording, but this is a pretty small ensemble that Goldsmith somehow manages to make sound a good deal bigger than it actually is. Uh, it's It's got a pretty rich, full sound on many different occasions. Yeah. He doesn't use, uh, I, I don't think he used violins, and that was another kind of common approach, like often for budgetary reasons in television, they would leave out the violin section so they'd have fewer players and that, you know, violas and even cellos could still have enough range to hit high notes and, you know, play expressive melodies, but it kind of drained the sentimentality out of a lot of these scores, so you didn't feel like it was getting saccharine. There was something a little bit more masculine about it, and particularly for something like this that's a horror where you're going to want to go to the lower notes, it grounds the score much better. And that there's only one double bass, which really has a very powerful presence in the score. You feel like you're hearing a whole section of double basses in a lot of the cues. There's this great kind of grinding, you know, heavy presence. Yeah. It might be the Druid Circle, where you hear some of these great grinding basses. It reminds me, actually, like of another score that Jerry did a little bit later in the 60s, Seconds. And there's some great double bass notes, you know, that just kind of pulse in that score. That's one of my favorite Goldsmith scores ever, actually. And I think it's the only film he ever scored that's in the Criterion Collection. So it's a higher pedigree, wow. I guess. So Chinatown's never been in the Criterion Collection? No. Mm -mm. I don't think so. They don't deal with Paramount. And Lonely or the Brave is another one that I think is just a masterpiece film, but right. never. Yeah, Jerry, I mean, that's a subject for a whole other podcast. But, you know, Jerry's work in a way was always a little bit more relegated to genre and sort of not the so much respected genre pictures he wasn't doing uh, rosemary's baby he was doing the omen he was doing more of the kind of commercial movies but he did manage to do some classic movies and those are some of the scores of his that i think you know at least for a time became his most iconic works things like chinatown and Patton, where the movies were more respected he's the val luton of film composers in a way 
taking this genre stuff and what little he's given and making the absolute best of it. It's funny, uh, I mean, not to sidetrack this even more, but I just watched uh, Love Field last night. I mean, I was fast forwarding through it. I never watched the whole thing. And that's something where his, you know, a lot of his music was replaced. Uh, apparently, there was a producer who was really determined to get rid of as much of that score as possible. And they replaced it with all this kind of um, like piano solo. Yeah. P- yeah. Solo piano. Some of which is kind of like bluesy and I was watching it. And that is a more of an attempt at a, you know, sort of a mainstream drama, which Goldsmith did a lot of in the sixties and seventies, but then didn't do so much after that. And he was more known for genre movies. And it's funny because parts of it, I think, really work. He does some of this blues writing for strings that's still very effective and works in that movie. But then he's got like his kind of chase music and suspense music that seems a little bit out of fashion for what the movie was. And a lot of that got left off the album, too. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, and I'm sure, obviously, there's probably a ton of music that was written for that movie because there's all sorts of traveling scenes and stuff where they didn't use a note of anything, and I'm sure that he would have written stuff. There's a list on the Academy website of all the cues he wrote because they've got their written scores, and it's quite a bit. It looks like there is some stuff that's not on the album or in the film. So I've been longing for an expanded release on that one, and I know Roger Feigelson at Entrada is even a fan of the um, replacement composer's piano work. So who knows? Maybe yeah. someday we'll get everything that was written for it. Well, at least Jerry wouldn't be around to be mad that the <laughs> piano stuff was included on the <laughs> album. <laughs> so our plot synopsis. Our story begins as Scotland Yard Detective Inspector Harry Roberts, who's played by Kenneth High, arrives in the small village of Dark Woods to investigate the mysterious murder of an old hedge cutter. Harry was supposed to be on his honeymoon with his new bride Nesta, who's played by Audrey Dalton, who is tagged along for the adventure and is hoping the whole thing can be handled quickly, for understandable reasons. The nature of the murder suggests that it was a form of ritual killing, as the techniques employed are the same as those that were once used in the killing of suspected witches. Now, nearly everyone in the village is remarkably superstitious, save for the relatively level-headed Chief Constable Sir Wilfred, played by Alan Caillou, and the widespread paranoia adds another layer of difficulty to the investigation. Now, when another local woman is burned alive, it becomes clear that things are getting out of hand very quickly. Things are further complicated when Nesta begins seeing visions of a mysterious black dog, leading some in the village to believe that she, too, may be a witch. So Harry and Nesta do some digging and work their way towards the truth, but their efforts are interrupted when Nesta is kidnapped by the deeply superstitious Constable Evans, played by Alan Napier, and his elderly mother, played by Doris Lloyd. They're certain that Nesta is a witch and plan to burn her alive. Sir Wilfred, who happens to be Constable Evans' half-brother, attempts to intervene but is killed for his efforts. Thankfully, the mysterious black dog turns up to guide Harry to Nesta's location. Harry then tussles with Evans and rescues Nesta. And that's the story of Hayfork and Bill Hook. What can I tell you about the folks who made Hayfork and Bill Hook? It's directed by Herschel Doherty. Basically, most of the people in this episode are just big TV people. Lots and lots of TV, lots of episodic TV. So Herschel Doherty, director, lots of episodic TV. 
His thrillers were God Grant That She Lies Still, Late Date, Masquerade, The Grim Reaper, The Poisoner, The Weird Tailor, so lots of Goldsmith connections there. The episode was written by writer and actor Alan Caillou, who plays our Sir Wilfred in this. He wrote the episode. That's interesting. He wrote a lot of episodic TV, including three thrillers. He acted in similar projects, episodic, often genre TV like Western, sci-fi, and sci-fi adjacent stuff. So Alan's been around. His Jerry Goldsmith connections, he's in The Terror in Teakwood, and he acted uncredited as Inspector Seymour in The List of Adrian Messenger, which also had Richard Peel. Uh, Richard Peel is one of the two Caldecott and Chalmers-like army guys who are metal detecting. He's in The List of Adrian Messenger as well. He's also in The Poisoner. Ronald Long. Ronald Long. Who the heck is he? He's not one of the lead guys. Mr. Jonas. Ronald Long is also in the list of Adrian Messenger. Oh. Alan Napier in a lot of films since the 30s. He was a colleague and friend of Val Luton. He did his eulogy. Lots of TV from the 50s. He's in eight Hitchcock Presents or Hours. He's in three thrillers, three night galleries, a Twilight Zone. He's Alfred the Butler. His connection Maybe breaking point, so many pretty girls, so little time. I'm not sure if we're sure Jerry did yep. that. Jerry did that one, we're you know, sure. <laughs> we're yep. sure? Thanks, Yavar. And he's in QB7. That kind of interests me, that we're going to be seeing him do something like hmm. that. Doris Lloyd, in film since the 20s, including Johnny Weissmuller's first Tarzan movie, some universal horror movies. She's in John Brahms' The Lodger, which you like, Yavar. The Time Machine, The Sound of Music, lots of anthology TV. No Jerry Goldsmith connections for her. J. Pat O'Malley, who did lots of Disney feature voices, is in Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper. And Gilchrist Stewart is in Moraturi, Justine, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from Climax. <laughs> So Jeff already gave us a good introduction to our first cue, which is the prologue. And this, as he says, is kind of a primer for this score. It covers a whole lot of territory in a couple of minutes. Jeff, can you talk about that one a little bit and some of the different ideas it covers? Yeah, we set up this kind of lonely theme for the land and the culture and the, the people. It's for this old man. I think it's maybe a theme for the setting and how it like works itself upon the people who find themselves here, the townspeople, and then she gets so drawn in. You know, her bow is just from an entirely different world, but she gets really closely connected. Yeah, it's funny. Yavar, when we were doing Gunsmoke, Love Thy Neighbor, which is our previous episode to this one, he called the Love Thy Neighbor theme malleable. And this theme, just to hear it as a melody, you would think this is not going to be malleable because it sounds like a ditty. It sounds like a piece of cultural music. And yet here in the prologue, it's spooky and maybe labored a little bit. And the very next cue, roll call, it's kind of peppy. And in the car ride, it's lavish. And so it turns out it's really mal. It doesn't seem like it would be to me. But Goldsmith proves me wrong as the score goes on. The opening of is very starkly and uh, impressively shot. It's maybe the best-looking sequence in the episode. Some cool camera angles and such. Yeah. So the music is very vivid, and you know you get that pitch bend to establish this kind of Stonehenge ruins that is going to be a focus of the episode. But even though he's establishing multiple ideas here... They feel fragmented, particularly the main theme feels like it's kind of being broken up by the pitch bend idea because it's never allowing it to be stated in a kind of straightforward, straight through comforting guise. It's always making us uncomfortable. 
you know, the main theme is fully stated, but it's very slow and drawn out and kind of constantly interrupted by that other idea. And that happens a lot throughout the score with the little pitch bin showing up as kind of a punctuation mark between statements of the main theme. Now, just under a minute into the cue, that kind of back and forth tug of war gets interrupted briefly by sort of a new idea on flute, which I don't think recurs elsewhere in the score, but it's kind of this mysterious and slightly threatening music. I mean, the other thing I would say is that we have the murder of the old man and Goldsmith's shrieking murder music. There's some use of strings here, but what I thought was interesting kind of going back and listening to that again is that he builds those horn pitch bends into that attack music. These kind of shrieking horns are doing little pitch bends as part of that attack motif. You're talking about near the end of the queue, right? When the the murder is being committed. Yeah, exactly. The horns kind of totally let loose, and I would almost describe them as like these evil whoops on horn. At that point, that's the most Bernard Herrmann-esque music, I think, in the entire score to my ear. That reminded me of Bernard Herrmann's Death Hunt a bit from On Dangerous Ground that that was later reused in Battle of Naretva. And before that, you've got uh, this kind of seesawing idea. Any two-note theme is basically going to remind you of Jaws, but this one, it reminds me of Jaws. It's an effective little piece of suspense music there before that huge climax. So for listeners at home who may be more familiar with this from the Tadlow Thriller CD, we may do a little bit of comparing throughout, but in general... Lee Phillips specifically mentions that he slightly expanded the ensemble for Tadlow, and I think you can really hear it. The Tadlow sounds roomier, it sounds fuller, it sounds much more lavish, and I really enjoy listening to it. We're going to be playing from the isolated score, just because that's a little harder to come by, and that's the score for the film. The isolated score is much more close mic'd. I think it feels crisp and stark, especially in this particular cue, the viola, which is supposed to sound kind of like a fiddle. is much drier and crisper sounding. And so you'll notice that throughout as we do this. The Tadlow Suite runs about 10 minutes. The isolated score is actually 17. So there's about seven and a half minutes that didn't get carried over to Tadlow. A lot of little tiny But it's a more there. representative suite on Tadlow than some of the other scores got. There are a few striking cues that are left off, but for the most part, he kind of captured the full journey. And there were no, like, extended developed moments that got left out compared with, say, the, the Poisoner, I feel like, had some greater highlights left off for time reasons. We should mention one more thing since we were bringing up Lee Phillips. Uh, all of the cue titles for the thrillers, as we've noted previously, are made up. I don't believe we know any official cue titles for this series like we do with The Twilight Zone. So Lee made up all of the cue titles on the Tadlow albums, and we've been using his as a basis, but in this case, David invented the cue titles that we were missing that weren't on the Tadlow. So these are not official, and if there is an official release of these scores someday, our little podcast here won't match up with it, but we'll still go ahead and refer to our made-up titles this episode, I think, since we'll provide a guide for listeners.
it's pretty terrifying when it hits that point in the music. That prologue, though, is really effective. I mean, it's just a brief sort of setup with the murder, but it is fantastically atmospheric for me. And that actor who plays the victim, I guess his name is uh, Lumsden Hare. He really makes you sympathize with him and fear with him before he gets killed. But after that, we do get the main theme in its full unadulterated form as part of a piece called Roll Call, which is our introduction to the main cast of this episode. Yeah, I like that you just seen a murder. You have Boris Karloff introducing the idea of, you know, witches. And obviously this is a horror TV show, but it's not some shrieking, nervous, you know, psycho opening for this roll call of actors and characters it's back to his main theme and there's kind of the soothing feeling it's a kind of reminder that for these people this is like normal life they're not on edge about everything they're doing this out of love in a way (laughs) you know they're doing this to preserve their culture and their way of life so the theme speaks to that a little bit and you know it obviously also becomes associated with the character of the detective's wife who sort of has her own relationship to the culture and the land so it's a very useful piece of material uh, as we play roll call the tadlow has a real flow from fuller strings and the horns are way back if you listen to the isolated score the horns are much more pronounced in this version I, for one, prefer that with this score. I mean, I can't wait for the tapes to be discovered at Universal and for a definitive thriller score release to come out because, for me, this is just so visceral. It, you know, grabs me in the gut when I'm hearing the original recording. And the Tadlow is lovely as music, but it doesn't quite punch me in as violent a way as the strongest parts of the original recording do. I have to say that Karloff's intro here is probably my favorite of his so far that we've seen. And in a place like Dark Woods, for example, deep in the mountains of the Welsh borders, where the village cowers in the shadows of the druid stones, an ancient sacrificial circle put there, who knows when? For these simple villagers, time has not moved very fast. And the old habits and fears die hard. Our story tonight deals with their attempts to exorcise a witch. Along with that prologue before it, it really sets the atmosphere for this tale. Yeah, I think this cue and Car Ride Together, which is cue number five, they kind of invite you to allow yourself to like any of the characters you're going to meet. Because this is playing over the the roll call, which has the characters we're going to see that are good and the ones that are bad. And, And Car Ride, you've got Evans, who's not our favorite person, and our two leads, and they're all rushing off to the car, and it has that same car ride is actually a much happier thing. But I think this these two work in tandem to give you the opportunity to let yourself enjoy the company of these people. And in this form, there's something kind of stately and ceremonial about it to me, which also fits with the larger purpose of introducing the main cast here. 
The other thing to mention in this cue is I believe it's the introduction of bump, 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 in kind of a gentle rocking way. Yeah, it turns into this more kind of diabolical dance-like figure, which I think is a key like signature approach that Goldsmith takes that I think might be unique to him. He kind of comes up with these weird death dances, and it brings this partly cultural aspect, but also kind of it brings a feeling of insanity to a lot of his action scenes and killing scenes. You know, in Hollow Man commentary that he did, he talks about, like, this is like, what the fuck is going on music? What he was a genius at was just creating this kind of music that had a strong musical structure, but to hear it, it always seems so bizarrely out of place that it just multiplied the, the feelings of madness, you know, that you're watching with the cr- craziness of, of what was going on on screen. And it fits what's available to him on screen because Goldsmith was always able to make his horror scores works of, of stunning beauty. Some of the most beautiful music he wrote in all of his 200 plus scores is for horror films but here Mm -hmm. you've got additionally you've got karloff who on the one hand is is an icon of horror on the other he has that silky voice and that pleasant demeanor that is that is a genuine outflow of who he was as a human being and so you know and you've got those friendly faces as they're introduced on screen they're all they're not screaming on screen so it's giving goldsmith the opportunity to do the curious blend of of the pleasant and the sweet with the foreboding next we have the title screen cue which is what it sounds like it's a brief bit of transition music for the title screen as we come back from commercial and it's really kind of encapsulates the score in just a very short few seconds kind of like my favorite little transition cues in The Big Tall Wish. Yes, and this is a kind of go-to method Goldsmith will use a few times in this score when he needs a quick bit of transition music. He'll do the little pitch bend idea and then quote the main theme real quickly and we're off to the races. None of the short cues in this one come off to me as act-in, act-out music. They're not calling attention to themselves that way, even though they are so brief, but they do a really effective job of, you know, setting the scene. This has Yavar's beat behind it again, Yavar's timing signature, only this time it's kind of like it's dragging a leg. It doesn't have, it's not like a dance, like roll call. It's like a bit of a lumber. And the interesting thing here is he does a little brief variation on the main theme after that pitch bending motif opens it up, led by flute here. And he kind of does a different little variation each time on some of these shorter cues that are just scene setting or or reintroducing us back after the commercial break. He doesn't just reuse what he wrote before. He does a subtle, slightly different little variation each time on these short cues. And I should also note, this is the very first cue we've come to that's unreleased on the Tadlow recording. (laughs) 
I was talking to uh, Christoph Beck a year or two ago, and he compared Goldsmith to Beethoven in terms of his being able to generate, you know, so many variations off of a, like a little motif. Hmm. You know, Goldsmith could always come up with a new variation, even on something that was two or three notes long. You know, look at the, the Swarm, right. one of the most note-heavy scores he ever wrote. really based on two notes. I mean, it's a three-note motif, but the second and third notes are basically the same notes an octave apart. So, you know, he seemed to have an endless capacity to do this. And it's amazing, you know, there are some very good composers out there who will, when they have a theme that they need to use multiple times, sometimes just present it, if not exactly in the same way, and almost exactly the same way on a few different occasions. But Goldsmith almost never does that. It's extraordinary the lengths he goes to to find something new to do with every cue. I mean, that's the reason why Goldsmith, more so than any other film composer, I feel like I always want to get every note. And I know Jerry would sometimes get annoyed about that, you know, and he wasn't a big fan of expansions all the time. And he complained about bottle cap collectors and artists aren't always, you know, the best judge of their own work anyway. He said that himself. I was there. Yeah. But for me, every cue, I mean, maybe not for 100% of of Jerry's scores, but for 99% of his output, every cue has something new or different or interesting about it that's some development of the thematic material. And so it's part of that journey. He never just has a character show up again, and he just plays their theme verbatim, you know, in a similar way that it was done before. He's, he's always tweaking something You know, and I don't know if he was doing that for the audience or if it was more for himself because he wanted to make it interesting. But it feels like even the quote unquote throwaway, you know, 15 second cues, he didn't waste them musically like he did something different. Speaking of doing something slightly different with similar material, the next cue, Constable Evans, is is pretty similar to the title screen cue in some ways. There's a little bit of suspense before you get to the pitch bend idea, and then you've got another variant on the main theme. Yeah, the strings are now harmonizing in kind of an odd fashion, and they make that melody, which is so soothing two cues ago, uh, you know, two minutes ago, now feel unsafe. And so here we've got it, instead of on flute, we've got it on, my notes say fiddle. We know it's a viola, but it's kind of, it's a viola played in a fiddly sort of way. Yeah, that's another kind of hallmark of his scores for this type of genre. I mean, obviously, we talked about this for the Invaders, although that was a violin. It was a little bit more pushed in terms of that kind of expressive fiddly playing you know i just read i wish i could remember what the there's a technical term for that bouncing the bow on the strings oh you found it i I literally just learned it so i'm not going to be able to remember what it is this is more of a subtle expression of that kind of style it's in the expressivity of the playing but you're not really getting that kind of hard attack that you hear in um, the invaders so it's almost more of a texture in the playing than an effect it's not the full kind of scratchy, but it's right. it's a little bit rougher. It's a little bit, I don't know, folksier or something. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm always trying to describe. What you know, what is this fiddle thing? Uh, you know, Dance Macabre is, uh, I think, probably the best known uh, if you wanted to play something to demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a piece of classical music. That would be the go-to piece. 
there's a whole devil in Daniel Webster and the whole mm-hmm. idea of the devil, you know, playing the fiddle, and that seems to play into the use of that. We should mention, too, that this cue accompanies the appearance of Constable Evans, who's one of the local authority figures in this village, and it pretty quickly becomes apparent that he may not be an entirely trustworthy sort. Clearly that's Goldsmith's opinion. At least we're given to suspect him at this point because he appears with a hay fork in his <laughs> yes. hand. Bit of a giveaway. And, and from behind a rock where he's been watching our heroes, too. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a bit of a, of a creep. Well, I might ask the same thing of you. I'm a police officer. There's only one policeman in Dark Woods. That's me, myself. Well, then you must be Constable Evans. How do you know my name? You're a stranger in these parts. You come from the city. I'm Detective Inspector Roberts of Scotland Yard, and uh, I think you can put that thing away. Yeah, I found it to be almost kind of a misdirect, because if we just saw a murder committed with a hay fork, and then he just shows up with a hay fork, it feels like an intentional... It could not be this guy because it would be too obvious, right? Yeah. At this point, Constable Evans is joining our main couple who's visiting the village. I guess they're on their way back to the village after running into him. Right. For memory's sake, Nesta and what's her what's her little man's name? <laughs> uh, uh, How do you spell that? That is a good question. I'm going to have to look at my own plot description because I've already forgotten. <laughs> He's uh, such a memorable, strong character. Harry Roberts. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't think I ever knew that name. (laughs) That's one of those names that just goes in one ear and out the other. Harry Roberts. That's why you don't know the name. Could have just swapped the names. He could have been Robert Harry's or something. So, David, this next one is a favorite cue of yours (laughs) that you were eager to get to. Do you want to describe Car Ride? I do like it. Uh, It's Well, it's, it's played as, well, Evan's having sprung himself upon our heroes and behaved all gloomy and spooky and like your standard stuck in the old world guy. For whatever reason, when they decide to get in the car to head out to the house, it's just this happy, happy music as they're walking through the dry leaves in the darkness. They're not really strolling. They're not really running. They don't look happy. But Goldsmith scores it like a bunch of people about to set off on a happy adventure. And it's (laughs) these three people. It's, you know, with their uncomfortable meeting. And he's sort of no less dour than he's been uh, so far in the film. But Goldsmith scores it like it's just a happy, happy day. That rocking rhythm's back from the roll call. Yeah, and it's like a ballroom dance version of the theme. It's really wonderful. The part I expected Clark would love based on the one he loved from Cheaters. It's a really good piece. And uh, this one also kind of expands the main theme a bit. We talked about this last time, but there's sort of a bridge section there in the middle of it. Yeah, I think you get two bridges, right? Yeah, Jeff said there were two bridges, and I didn't didn't fully follow that last time. You hear two bridges, Jeff? I feel like there's two different, or maybe just a variation of the bridge that's played. But yeah, it's a lot more than you would expect to get, for sure. Since it's a short cue, let's just play it right now. It's like a minute. Straightforward statement of the main theme. So that's the whole thing. 
But then this is like a little bridge section, right? Right. You call this a bridge section? Okay. And now, here's another. Yeah, that's the one, the part I thought was the bridge. That's so lovely. And now we go back to the main version, the main theme. Yeah, and then the car crash. I think I thought your first bridge was an extension of the theme, so that's why I didn't identify it that way. Uh, but I, I buy it. Well, yeah, the one that starts about 24 seconds in is the one that's more overtly the bridge, but there's definitely something in between the first full statement of the theme and that, right. which is probably what Jeff's talking about, right? Right. It's our usual Goldsmith value added. The end titles loops four seconds of it and repeats it to extend it to the correct length, but otherwise, it's the identical thing. So, I think we can actually play it for our listeners without the sound effects from the isolated track because we'll just use that end credits version here. This is one of the cases where, at least for me, the tadlow, the strings are back further, they're more echoey. So in the tadlow, it actually sounds a bit more haunted. The isolated score is much more, I want to say, easily cheerful. And in the tadlow, it maintains a sense of spookiness and of big house. It's definitely a different energy. It is. It's the only case where I think the tadlow is more spooky versus the isolated score. It's the only time when, when that is flipped. Yeah, so it's definitely the most developed that we've had this theme so far, and it does feel very kind of journeying. Yeah, the most upbeat and energetic take on this theme we're going to get in this score. And aside from that, what, three or four seconds of terror at the end, uh, just a completely lovely cue. Yeah, it gets interrupted at the end, but this is kind of such a good statement of the main thematic material that it's the cue that gets reused at the end of the episode. And in case people are curious, the reason for the change in music at the end is that Nesta steers off the road because she sees this mysterious black dog and is trying to avoid hitting it. Which unfortunately nobody else in the car sees. No. Or the camera. Yes. (laughs) And so we then cut to uh, Hogwarts. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) So this cue is called The House. This accompanies our first meeting with Sir Wilfred, who is the chief of police here in this area, and uh, seems like the only guy in town who really seems to have, you know, a good head on his shoulders and isn't panicking at every single little thing that happens. And by chief of police, he's the chief constable. Yeah, yeah. And then when we meet Constable Evans, he's like, there's only one constable around here, and that's me. So (laughs) I guess there are 
there's a constable and a chief constable, but that's the entire police force, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a small town. That's all they need. Yeah, and, you know, it's clear they have a lot of citizens more than arrest going on. This cue has another goldsmith trademark. Might be the first time I've heard this particular one used in a score, but it's something I associate with uh, a lot of his later scores, like Capricorn 1 and Total Recall. It's just this kind of brass swell. But at the very end of the oh, the main title, the kind of introduction to Mars, you hear this like... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the way he does establishing shots, I think, in a lot of movies and TV shows. But he uses to kind of set scenes that kind of give a, a feeling of importance to transitions or establishing shots. It's something you almost associate with like a little crane shot or camera move. It's subtle. It's just a kind of a, a subtle kind of brass swell that's played through this cue. But to me, it's a really distinctive device that he uses a lot. He's creating a feeling rather than using notes on a page or a melody, he's creating it using the orchestration and the instrumentation. Mm -hmm. Just Just the feeling that instruments can give you. He can use that to create a vibe. This is another one that struck me as feeling very much like something Bernard Herrmann might do in one of his scores for like a brief transition, you know, establishing shot kind of thing. Right. And it is interesting. This is just a, a piece of brief transition music and uh, he gets gets a lot of mileage out of it. And Goldsmith, in a pretty short period of time, seems to have gotten much better at making the most of these little, you know, 10, 15 second cues and uh, making them work in interesting ways. And notably, this is one of those few short cues that uh, Lee Phillips actually made a point of including on the Tadlow recording. And he made a minor variation. He uh, de-emphasized the brass, which is rather strong in the isolated score. So our next cue is a very interesting one. It's called the Druid Circle. And this is when we get to some of that devilish fiddle material that Jeff was alluding to earlier. Right, we kind of have rhythmic stabbing strings in this cue. And ultimately, near the end of it, we get a full statement of the main theme as our characters are hurrying out to the druid circle for the act out. So this cue, even though it's fairly short, it's only just over 40 seconds long, mm -hmm. it, it really makes a bit of an impact Let me ask you guys, the string tension music in the middle of this, what does it remind me of? So I'll just play it. Okay. Here. Mm -hmm. 
That. This. This. Okay. And this. The first thing it brought, this isn't, it's not the same theme or anything at all, but it brought something like the Witches of Eastwick to mind, hmm. to me, that sort of playful, right? Yeah, dark dance kind of sound. I mean, it's it's not quite as violent, but it's a little bit of a preview of that big abduction cue we get near the end of the score, right? in terms of that kind of violent, rhythmic string writing. Okay. I, it was so evocative. It, honestly, it's possible that I'm listening to the isolated score and what it evoked was my memory of the Tadlow recording. <laughs> but I thought, well, is this from the cheaters or the poisoner? It feels like it's from something that I know but didn't wrestle with that maybe you guys covered. It is an instantly memorable piece of music. And I honestly don't know whether it's memorable because it is like something else or just because it is what it is. It's just but memorable. Yeah. It could very well be. Yeah. So I want to talk about Goldsmith as a dramatist. This piece right here, one of the things I like is the timing. That opening comes right when uh, Chief Wilfred is conveying his concerns about how Nesta will be perceived if she lets on that she had, you know, had seen the black dog or had a vision of the black dog. Goldsmith kicks it in when she makes the connection, which is he's basically saying they might think you're a witch. And he doesn't come out and say it, and until at a few seconds later. I think Mrs. Roberts understands what I'm driving at. Nobody else saw that dog except your wife. And she's young, beautiful. And bewitching. Come now. But I love that Goldsmith underscores her getting it. It's a great piece of timing, and it, it once again demonstrates that when he's watching the show, he's just smart. I really also like the way he kind of launches into the main theme briefly at the end. You know, it really kind of propels them out. Well, yeah, and this is yeah. this is almost a revision of the car approach, except they really are striding out on the adventure, so it, it sort of fits. But it's not a fun adventure. It's like a, an urgent and threatening one, kind of. Yeah, there's worry in the music, yeah. Our next cue is another transition cue coming back from commercial break and kind of is riding on the wave of the previous cue a little bit. We have some of those same rhythmic ideas continuing here. And I think it's a time connect because we're basically being introduced to new characters. We're going into our pub scene to see people who we haven't seen in the show before. So it's Goldsmith letting us know we're still in the same story, even though we're not uh, we're not with our adventurers. The low string action rhythm from the previous cue returns here. So it's almost like he doesn't want to lose the momentum that he built before the commercial break. And we've just had people seeing dancing rabbits or whatever, you know, on their TV, like you said, David. But this grabs us and kind of throws us back into the world with that momentum. Yeah, especially since we're going to spend so much time here in this pub with these characters, just kind of a little placeholder, like, okay, this is where we were. So just remember that while we're in this long hangout session. And as we find ourselves in the village pub with the townsfolk, they're looking out, I guess, presumably towards the stones, the Druid Circle. We get another hint of the main theme that plays on strings as the cue eases to a close. 
The next cue is in of the dark woods, which is where this pub is, right? Yes. And similarly to the opening cue of the score, the pitch bend motif here trades off with broken up, dark, mysterious sections of the main theme as Constable Evans relates to the other townspeople in the pub about Nesta seeing the black dog. He does a couple of things in this cue which uh, add to the tension very effectively, one of which is he adds these trembling strings beneath the main theme, and, and those you know work quite well, as they often do. And then he also, uh, as the main theme plays out, uh, there are just one or two notes here and there that go in a, a slightly different, more kind of uneasy direction that, than you expect them to. That adds to the sense that something is wrong somewhere. I think we should also just briefly mention that this is also when we meet Constable Evans's mother, who plays such a, you know important role in the plot and the mystery. Increasingly so as the episode moves along. She's kind of uh, creepy of a presence here a little bit. She, she seems kind of witch-like. And Goldsmith contributes to our mystification about exactly who she is or what her purpose is or what she's up to by scoring her as if she's a moody, spooky presence while she says things like, boy, wouldn't this be a much better place if we didn't all live on our fears or something like that. She sounds like she's speaking a common sense, but Goldsmith's scoring her like the old witch from up the hill. Into the Dark Woods basically starts and stops with her. It comes in when she comes in and, and the tremolo strings follow her out the door. And then Goldsmith stays out of the way for basically the next 10 minutes straight. Some of my favorite scenes in Hitchcock movies are these community conversations where you're at a party, say, in Strangers on a Train, and people are talking about how you might strangle somebody, or there's a similar conversation in Rope, there's a similar conversation in The Birds, in the, in the restaurant, where they're all talking about, can birds do this or birds not do this? It's a moment like that. It's, it might be filler, just because the director, Ted Post, does a commentary on the episode Papa Benjamin, and he's not at all thrilled with the episode Papa Benjamin. He thinks it's a stinker. And one of the things he says is they had all of five days to shoot these things, and that a lot of times the middle two acts were literally just filler. And that's what he said was the case with his episode. I mean, not this one particularly, but with his Papa Benjamin. Thriller it filler? Thriller filler. Yeah, really. And so it's possible that this was basically like, okay, we've got plot at the beginning and plot at the end, and we've got to write some stuff in the middle. Well, whatever was done here at least has, maybe because you've been cued to let ourselves like these people, we are seeing a conversation that it's nice to eavesdrop on. 
actually birds wise it even has and it's the end of the world guy in it it's the end of the world a guy who acts like that and sort of makes these brands my dad i was nine years old oh just a boy of nine over and over (laughs) so yes he has milked that so goldsmith stays back for 10 minutes and then the next seven cues we're going to play a lot of which are really tiny little in and out cues are not on Tadlow. So it's all just isolated. And this is where most of that seven minutes that he didn't use comes from. And our next cue is the one I named Black Dog. If I had to pick one unreleased cue that I wish had been included in the Tadlow suite, it would probably be this one. The violent opening of this unreleased cue has a moment on flute that reminds me of Nervous Man in a $4 Room. The part in uh, Nervous Man that it reminded me of is, I think, the image cue where the main character is looking in a mirror. And it's interesting that our main character here, she's startled by the dog in the mirror. And I wondered if there was some little connection there with that flute moment. Yeah, this cue definitely reminds me of that. And uh, I think there's another score called Late Date that's got a Nervous Man and a $4 room vibe to it, too. So he was still playing around with those ideas a little bit. And there's a little bit on woodwind there, this kind of fluttery woodwind thing, and it reminds me of the little electronic motif in Total Recall that goes... It sounds like that. As soon as you said the fluttery flute, I went right to that exact thing in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And this is a cue that accompanies Nesta looking in her mirror as she's making herself look nice. She sees the black dog in the mirror. And it terrifies her. Yeah. She scares it away instead of saying, come here, doggy. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. This whole piece is her frame of mind from the point where she sees the dog. She gets hysterical, you know, because she's a woman and that's just what they do. Why she got to close her eyes while she's screaming, you know, it's so convenient for the dog to just leave. (laughs) Then she's emotionally drained because she's a woman, so she's weak, so screaming has taken it out of her, and it gets all swirly. Goldsmith is doing a great job, and the actress is doing a fine job. It is a silly thing to have her have to do. She seems too intuitive to react to the dog in quite that way, in my mind. But everyone plays it well. Yeah, she comes across as somebody with a really good head on her shoulders up to a certain point. Up to this point, and then from this point, and then from this point on, too. This is the only point you wish they had been like, hey, Nesta, you've had a little too much wine today, so there could be some reason for it. Or something that sets up her uneasiness, like right before this. Sure. Yes. Maybe. She does have one other peculiar moment earlier. We've already gone past it, but the part where she says she can almost feel the flames on her face uh, and and seems to be experiencing some kind of... That's true. uh, Almost some kind of strange psychic sense memory or something like that. It's it's an odd moment. Yeah. So maybe it's putting her in a weird mental state that makes her more susceptible to this startled moment yeah maybe i shouldn't be as hard on them as i am being i've been listening to this score well i listened to it a good deal before our first recording session i've been listening to it again more recently preparing for this one you know i've been listening to the isolated score which has some some sound effects and and stuff on it and my five-year-old always notices this cue because there's a great big scream in the middle of it and as i was listening to it tonight just before i was getting ready to record this this cue came on, it started with that kind of intense material, and he goes, she's about to scream, as he was walking by the room. (laughs) So he's clearly heard it enough, but that's a good piece. 
And we end with a brief flute statement of the main theme for another act out. But again, just a little little subtle variation. Mm-hmm. We have another uh, short transition cue called Fearsome Weapon up next. And this follows that classic pitch bend followed by a quote of the main theme formula. Yeah, and and I guess there's nothing much to say here to add on to that, except, uh, again, it's slightly different than before. And it's, you know, it's setting the scene, but not in a, I'll just reuse that previous scene setting cue kind of way. Indeed. Before we get to the next piece of music, I want to discuss the conversation in this scene afterwards. Um, and, and it gets another callback later in the episode, but when the hand warmer is being explained... <laughs> It seems like our protagonist is not too bright here. He's like, what's it for? What's this thing for? That's a hand warmer. You put a few pieces of live coal in there. Really? What on earth for? For warming the ends, to be sure. Warming your ends, of course, you know. (laughs) And then later on, there's a moment with uh, Constable Evans where he... You know, he, he has a similar kind of duh moment. Like, of course, it's for what it's called. But I, I, I like this funny little exchange. Then we go to the Q town hall, which kind of threw me off because I wasn't certain we were hearing a variation of the old theme or an actual new theme in town hall as Nesta pokes around town hall doing some investigations for her husband. It's another variation. It's just a little more... It's a variation? Yeah, I think it's another variation of the main theme. You know, it's... Okay. It's cut off suddenly at the end when uh, Nesta's startled again. We we have another little jump moment for the librarian or clerk or something. I kept finding it a mystery as to whether it was sort of a new little noodling thing or if it was connected, and I really couldn't connect it very well. Here, let me play it for one second, okay. if you don't mind. No, go ahead. So I think it's related. It's yeah. it's a more distant variation than we're used to at this point. But And it's so slow and it's cut off before you could hear enough to be sure, maybe, or at least I would hear enough to be sure. Yeah. So we've got da da dee da da dum ba bum ba ba da ba bum. Yeah, the, so we talked about this some on the previous episode, and I didn't really place it either when I was listening to it the first time around, and it seemed like a new theme to me. Listening to it now, it sounds like it may be connected to the bridge melody oh. uh, that we hear in the middle of the car ride cue, that, that it's a variant on that. It feels related. I mean, it may be a distant variant, but it's definitely cut from the same cloth. This isn't like a wholly new idea. Right. It's that part that dun, 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 a bit from the middle of that cue. Okay. This seems like that's the closest thing I can find in the score to what this is. Like I said, before this piece of material he came up with is such an elaborate, long-lying 
thing that I would think he probably could have written another two hours of, <laughs> of variations. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you can reverse notes, you can flip lines upside down, and there's all sorts of stuff you can do with any of this to create variations. So I, I would be stunned if he just decided to invent something from whole cloth in the middle of the score. I just wanted to mention this cue for some reason put me in mind a bit of Window to the Past from John Williams's score to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And that cue leads with a solo recorder instead of flute, but it has a similar kind of English pastoral feel to it. And of course, John Williams was a famous Anglophile, and you can hear it in so much of his music, especially starting with Jane Eyre in 1970, which is my favorite score of his. But there are so many British composers who have written stuff like this, and it's not really something people generally think of when it comes to Jerry Goldsmith, maybe with occasional exceptions like List of Adrian Messenger. But, you know, he really demonstrates the ability to write in a sort of old English pastoral idiom. This is another cue that I miss a little bit on the Tadlow Suite because it is a pretty different variation on the material. The other one I was always thinking about when I hear this score is Frau Doring from uh, Boys from Brazil. Boys from Brazil is all like that German waltz through most of it, but then there's this kind of idol in the middle of it, this cue called Frau Doring that's a flute, and it's this much more kind of gentle pastoral music. So he could do stuff like that, and you know he would do scores like Cassandra Crossing. the last run. You know, that I think were, you know, recorded overseas and maybe it was just the players he was using, but, you know, they were European, set in Europe and they had like a distinctly European sound to them. So when he wanted to, he could get into the vibe. And, that, you know, that's what the main theme is here, too. It's it's this kind of old England rural folk tune in a way. Who's got the hounds? It might just be me, but I think I hear that black dog. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Jeff, well, what you were getting at about him being overseas, because he knew he had those players, if you think he steered into that a little bit in his compositions, or do you think that sound just came from the way they played? Well, I think he did it intentionally, because obviously he did a bunch of scores recorded overseas for subjects set in the U.S. that didn't have that feeling. So mm -hmm. a lot of times he just got a bigger sound out of the orchestra, but it didn't sound European. Right. Right. 
But if you listen to particularly the, like the woodwinds and Cassandra Crossing, and just the way like last run uh, the reverb and uh, use of like harpsichord and flute yeah. in that just sounds like it's some pop European recording. And it's also possible that he wrote those overseas, and then he was kind of steeped in the culture over there and hearing different kinds of music, and maybe it just kind of leached into what he was doing. Okay. So our next cue accompanies the conclusion of Nesta's investigation into all of this material, and it's called Records. And again, we have the pitch bend theme, and we go back to that trembling string idea beneath the main theme. And again, the pitch bend idea sort of serves as a punctuation mark uh, appearing between those statements of the main theme. There's a subtle feeling of danger underneath i think we've got the main theme playing kind of uncertainly on flute above but it's kind of uneasy because this is where nesta learns that evans is sir wilfred's half-brother and it's like a, a major revelation in the story and again goldsmith comes in once again underscoring nesta's acumen nesta's picking up on something he scores her realization of course she's she's very old she married a man called uh, evans a, a gardener you mean the policeman's mother? Yes, yes. Oh, you've seen her. Okay, can I ask you guys a quick question? Yeah. Does it matter that those two guys are brothers? Does it mean anything? Does it affect the story in any way? Or is it just a revelation? Uh, I don't think it actually impacts the story in any significant way. Um, I, I suppose that's part of why they are working together on the police force despite their profound differences you know their relatives and that overpowers everything i guess okay just check into i mean it's it's revealed that sir wilfred is kind of covering for him i guess and that's why he's okay spying on them i'm, I'm not sure there either there's definitely a brother against brother thing going on at the end right. and some sadness from the mother yeah i just didn't get i thought like, goldsmith knows something i don't know about why this matters to nesta mm-hmm. and i don't know what it is maybe i've gotten jaded and i'm not paying attention or maybe i'm paying attention and it's just not here hmm I think it's not an episode you're meant to rewatch and question like right. we have for the Goldsmith Odyssey. You just you see it the one time and you just go with it right. and the music carries you through. But if you're really considering it closely like we are for this, it's like stuff just starts to fall apart and not really make much sense. Okay. So our next piece comes a few minutes later. It's called Suspicions. And this is the other moment we have with Evans and the other tool, the mole spike. Why? Nothing but an ordinary mole spike. What's a mole spike? To catch moles with, to be sure. There's this, the pitch bend idea at the beginning of this cue. It feels 
more like one sustained note to me. That's right. In its presentation here, but it sounds a little bit different than it does elsewhere in the score. And that's correct. It it is different. You're right. We ch- we checked yeah. that out. Well, it's it's kind of like it's orally disintegrating the main theme. You know, the pitch bend is kind of breaking it down here. And it's interrupting it. It's unrelenting. The bent horn proceeds at a solid, uninterrupted pace. And you're right, the theme cannot quite form on the flute and the piccolo. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a switch between which one has the stronger influence on the on the music. The theme sort of shifts in mood throughout the score. Sometimes it's quite upbeat, as in Car Ride. Other times, as in this cue, it sounds very troubled. And here the theme reaches one of its most troubled points, I would say. There's not a lot of joy or warmth in this presentation of it. got another unreleased cue up next about half a minute long that david called spyglass and that's when we see that sir wilfred is spying upon our heroes and through a spyglass <laughs> of course what's it for it's first spy. no uh, <laughs> the the uh, so <laughs> we've got a rapid kind of repeated note on flute that is the dominant motive in this cue, and it's... Like a flutter. Uh-huh, but it's sort of threatening. The transition is to the spyglass image, so we know someone is watching them go to the post office. Almost with a bird's eye view. Uh, yeah, for listeners at home, he's taking the watch with fingerprints to the post office to be shipped off to get fingerprinted, hoping that the true killer will try and abscond with this later on. So someone is watching them. And the flutters are on the reverse shot where we see the person who's watching, which is Chief Sir Wilfred. So that's exactly when those flutes come in both times, when it cuts to Sir Wilfred, to let us know, in case we didn't get it, that he's uh, he's he's a, a dirty dealer. He's got something going on. We don't know exactly that he's a full-on villain or anything, but we're made to question his motives at this point. And we've just had that revelation about him. Well, we were made to question the motives and in, in suspicions because it's staying on him. You know, it's it's they're going back to the car. We'll get along there right away. We'll see you later at the inn. Good. And then this music comes up to say, hey, look at this guy. We're, the camera is holding on him. He is thinking about things. He is unhappy with things. So Goldsmith starting to hint in suspicions, and then the camera is revealing, yes, in fact, he's not completely above board. You're right. We don't know if he's a full villain. And to be honest, by the end of this episode, I have no idea what he was all about. So I <laughs> I don't know. I can't say anything. Well, he seemed like he was trying to do good in the end. At the end he is. I just don't yeah, I can't figure him out. We don't know what his motivations are exactly. We don't know how his loyalties work. I don't. Uh, <laughs> well, I think it's a little misdirection or creating the feeling that the Alan Delow character might be the heavy it's more kind of what the fuck is going on music. It's that stuttering flute. It's on kind of dance-like. 
It's kind of ambiguous. It's not really, yeah. it's not playing like, Blom, this is a bad guy, yeah. It's not necessarily bad guy's theme, but it's like, what is this person doing? Why is he spying on it, them? It makes and, us worried. You know, what, are, what are we to think of this person? And the cue ends with some low strings that close it out kind of on a note of danger and unease as we go for another act out. Yep, that's our into commercial music. So naturally, next we have back from commercial music, and that is called Sleepless. Called by David. Called Sleepless by (laughs) David, which you now know and have heard the title for the first time on this episode. I'm saying that as if everyone knows it, but we've called it Sleepless. And this is our last fully unreleased cue. So it's the last one that David had to title. This one is, I think, perhaps the last kind of full, lovely statement of the main theme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have a bridge section come back again that plays on flute before it, the cue once more ends on a threatening note as Nesta sees someone is trying to turn the knob and enter her bedroom. You wouldn't guess this is a back from commercial cue either because it's a more extended piece than a lot of those and it's a really nice piece kind of the calm before the storm in this score because we're about to get a little onslaught of intense action music a really attractive take on that theme and it's nice to hear it so untroubled again after its more tense presentations in the past few cues It's 50 seconds long, and unlike the car ride one, it doesn't end with quite as violent an ending. It's a little threatening, so it's almost like kind of the most unadulterated version of the theme, but probably wasn't quite long enough for the end credits or something. Like I said, that main theme is for, you know, these people and this region. And as the story goes on, it becomes a little bit more associated with the wife character. And it helps, I think, kind of flesh out her character and her character have a bigger presence because she starts to kind of have that music attached to her. And she's drawn into their world, right? She's she's kind of buying into it and she's kind of having visions or becoming affected yeah. by where they are while her husband is like the skeptic and he's just like, this is all silly. This is poppycock, you know? Yeah. And he doesn't get his theme. No, he doesn't deserve a theme. No. He doesn't have a theme. No, he doesn't. The next three cues are almost one 
seven minute long cue because they're each broken up by about a second and a half during which someone says something. Let her go, Evans. Let her go. It almost functions as music. And if you get the isolated score, if you get the DVDs, it's a great seven minutes. I got to be honest, I'm half tempted to end the show with the seven minutes with the words, just so people can hear it as one big piece of music. And Lee Phillips took sections out of each one, but it still flows as one big piece of music in the way that that he arranged it. There's a definite sort of Star Wars final battle thing going on here with these last three pieces. I want to say I'm like I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm an every note kind of guy when it comes to Goldsmith. But this is a case where I think Lee's little excising of bits in the abduction and the fork and hook fight cues really kind of aid the momentum of this sequence because he took out the parts that, you know, were like little aside. They kind of interrupted a little bit. Yeah, this scene is, I I think I stumbled either right into this or in the middle of this. And it's probably the first thing I ever saw from Thriller. And I was immediately like, whoa, what is this? This is terrific. I got to have this. And it grabs you. Yeah. There's another Goldsmith trademark. And it's funny because I wonder if there is another (laughs) score from this era that has as many kind of trademark Goldsmith devices as this score has. But he uses this uh, koleno, uh, which is the string players reversing the bow and, and hitting the strings with the wood part of the bow. So it's like this clacking, clicking noise. And it's got a really unique sound because it's not just a wood hitting, you know, an object like a percussion. But the way the strings bounce and bend and they're hitting the wood part of the instrument as well as the bow. He would use this technique famously in some of his later scores. And the one that came to mind for me strongly was the Klingon music at the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, in fact, also Alien that same year, 79. I think it's more of an avant-garde technique and for Goldsmith's scores like Planet of the Apes. alien where he's really kind of pushing the boundaries and creating weird sounds. He also uses it in uh, Mephisto Waltz. Any score where there is just a lot of hardcore experimentation and and effects, you're almost always going to hear that sound from him. And it's a signature for him, and I've heard other composers use it, and every time I hear other composers use it, it just doesn't sound right. It either sounds like a deliberate homage, but nobody could really kind of create the underpinnings for it that Goldsmith seemed to be able to. So it's something I just totally associate with him this whole thing goes on when they're dragging her out the window and there's just this kind of grinding rhythm from double bass and brass and you're also getting that kind of fiddle texture from the violas it's it just creates this fantastic diabolical atmosphere and it mirrors the action in a way that accompanies the rhythms of the action it keeps helping push the action forward without just mickey mousing it it's a fantastic cue 
It's got that relentless, long, short, long, short yep. thing that I mentioned earlier. And that's been going all throughout the score, but never like it does here. The main theme isn't above it. It's just kind of the rhythm and this violent music. And the cue actually begins with the startling appearance of Evans, Constable Evans, at her door. She's been talking with his mother and the mother suspects her of witchcraft. Just as I was once, when we set the village aflame with our love so many years ago. You killed them, didn't you? Yes. You know that too, don't you? Only a witch could know. A witch with a fire burning dark inside her. A fire that must be burned away by fire. No. And it's a little bit confusing with the plot because you're like, if she's talking about, hey, you're like me, then is she a witch or is she someone who burns witches? It's a little bit weird if she's both. But she's the angel of witches, you know, like in Buffy. <laughs> the interesting thing about this cue is it reminded me of multiple other Goldsmith things. So the Cole Leno strings that... Jeff noted, but also hints of Nervous Man again. And the brass overlaying the cold Leno strings that start about 40 seconds in, it reminded me of 100 Rifles. There's like a hint of 100 Rifles brass as they are escaping out of the window. And it doesn't come through on the Tadlow recording as much, but it comes through really strongly with that 100 Rifles sound for me in the original recording. The other thing I wanted to note about this cue is it's centered around that same long, short, long, short rhythm that I brought up earlier. Yeah, it's so dominant in this, but, you know, when it was jaunty earlier and it would underscore the main theme, it would underlie the main theme and make it cheerful and kind of skippy, here it is completely transformed. You know, we don't have the main theme going over it, to make it lovely, but it's also the way it's played on the low strings, and it's almost like limping or dragging, or it's just painful. It's a This cue has like kind of different sections in it, and one of the interesting parts is when we cut away and we see Nesta's husband at the post office with his little scheme to, to catch the culprit, which is misdirected. Jerry Goldsmith acknowledges it in the music there. He kind of keeps the momentum going while changing the instrumentation. We go to an insistent, kind of unpleasant flute for that brief cutaway when he's expecting to catch the murderer, and somehow the momentum keeps going. It's not very often that a flute sounds violent, but it does here. When you say Jerry Goldsmith acknowledges it, do you mean he's scoring that this is misguided? Is that what you mean? No, I, I mean like it was... He's really good for his action writing in particular, but in general, like, he's really good at keeping a flow and a rhythm going in his cues, even when we're cutting to some other right. thing happening. It could be in, like, an entirely different setting, okay. like the post office here, but he'll keep a rhythm, he'll keep a momentum going in one of his action cues, even as we cut to some, like, calmer setting like he would do this in later scores where sure big action is happening and then we cut away somewhere where they're completely unaware of the action but you still feel like you know it's still going on off screen yeah. and this person had better hurry up because that clock is ticking 
yeah, the urgency is still there. And he acknowledges the scene shift for a moment in the music, but he doesn't lose the momentum that he's established. This is the first of those three cues that David mentioned that are part of that seven-minute sequence. For me, this is the most striking of those three climactic cues, in part because it comes where it does and just takes the score in a whole new direction. But every single second of this cue is is fascinating to me. He's just pulling out some incredible sounds and textures and ideas, and uh, what he does with this small ensemble in this piece is just remarkable. Clark, do you even like the final 30 seconds, the part that um, Yavar is happy that Lee omitted? Are you okay with the part where it cuts I, to? Or you're, you're talking about like those those churning strings there at the end? Where it's cutting over Roberts at the post office? Yeah. No, I love that stuff. It's great. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. This has the kind of dragging stuff when they're actually dragging the woman in the box into the temple, right? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's that rhythm, I think, again, but it's very much like a painful dragging. You're right. The main theme is largely absent from this cue. I mean, it's hinted at here and there, but instead we get the violent stabbing strings and the insistent, unpleasant flute. So the Tadlow, I know that Yavar pointed out things that the Tadlow subsumes. I do think it's a softer sound, but it's also really, really robust.
So if you like this cue, this is the part where in Tadlow, it just it just takes off and grabs you. It's not quite as gritty, though. No, it's not as gritty, but it's stronger. And it's a different kind of a strength. Because because he, I mean... Yeah, it's full. Yeah, what you want from a re-recording, if you don't have the music at all, you want it to be as close as possible to the original. If you do, and we kind of do, to a certain extent, it's almost like, do with this what you do with the Barnaby Jones theme in concert. Do what Goldsmith might have done if he preferred their recording style. Maybe he would have gotten a little more bold as well. I think they complement each other quite well. I can listen to one after the other and not feel like I'm hearing a repeat. So we have a brief one-second pause after the end of the previous cue, and then we, I think the, is it the opening of this cue that um, Lee leaves out? Yes. I believe, because it's a bit more halting. He cuts out the last 30 seconds of abduction, and then for this cue, he cuts out the first 30 seconds, and then he puts those together. into one really nice driven cue. Yeah, I think I was talking before about how, you know, Goldsmith always said he didn't want to like, you know, he didn't want a Mickey Mouse and he didn't want to duplicate the action on screen with his music. But at the same time, he could key off of visuals and visual action and brilliantly accompany, obviously, like all the action music through this. I just love the whole like title of this episode and how it plays off and that that you have this fight scene with these bizarre weapons which create their own rhythms and their own kind of musicality in terms of the visual action and that gives Goldsmith something to play apart from just a fight scene that you would normally see the strangeness of his fight music works so brilliantly with how strange this fight is now, we should mention who is fighting here, I think. This is the cue for the fight between Sir Wilfred and his half-brother, Constable Evans. And he's actually not fighting with a billhook. He's brought a scythe with him. Even better. Yeah, and he takes on Constable Evans, who has the fork. And when they're fighting, we get this really even more brutal action variation of the previous cues material. It kind of continues and develops it. And the French horns here, they sound so sinister with the mutes they're using. It really creates kind of a nasty feel to this confrontation. Yeah, it's some of the most exciting stuff in the score, that aggressive brass material alternating with those grim, low, hellish strings. It's it's very, uh, it's intense stuff, man.
towards the end of the queue, we get a brief mournful fiddle, which plays a fragment of the main theme as a brief sort of elegy for Sir Wilfred, who loses this confrontation. And here's one where Tadlow does something unique, I think. Its fuller strings make this cue on Tadlow sound a lot like Psycho. And when I listen to the isolated score, I don't even go there. So it's interesting how boosting the string section for this made it sound like one of Goldsmith's favorite scores from 1960, even though when he recorded it, it didn't do that. The final cue of the score is the longest cue of the score, and it covers a pretty good bit of territory, appropriately enough. You've got the main theme. You've got some of that pitch bend re-emerging. You've got some of that rhythm. Once again, those low string rhythms coming in. But then after that opening, we transition to kind of a more urgent, driving, low bass ostinato as he's searching frantically for his wife. And it's more kind of Hermanesque music here. It's kind of unclear to me why the <laughs> uh, antagonists stop fighting Goldsmith manages to score this whole thing so you feel like you got the right ending. He gets you to the end of the fight without you feeling like, huh, what happened? Why aren't they, yeah. you know, why'd they give up? I think he just creates a structure to the whole thing that you feel like you got your money's worth and the whole situation was resolved heroically, even though the action might not have quite sold that. We talked a little bit last time about how he has a gift for scoring what a film or a television show wants to be yeah. rather than what it actually is. Yeah. And that, that work goes a long way sometimes. And in this case, you've got something like dramatic spackling. You know, he's filling in a gap that wasn't quite committed to film properly. Yeah, there's so many scores of his. And it's not just him. If you look at so much other stuff around this period and in the, this whole era of filmmaking when they didn't have digital face replacement, so you were going to see stunt mm, right. people and they didn't have elaborate visual effects, so you were going to have to look at a matte painting and say, yeah, I believe that's an ancient temple. <laughs> the music is that's yeah that's a great description the spackle the music is kind of the spackle that smooths over all those rough edges and makes you believe in what's going on we've got a little brief mournful fiddled viola kind of playing a fragment of the main theme as a brief elegy for sir Wilfred at this point and with some off harmonies too yeah, it's that rougher, slightly out of tune, folksy, you know, maybe devilishy style we've heard in other Goldsmith horror scores before this. And uh, then some material that sounds a little bit unlike everything else in the rest of the score. Some more kind of melancholy material that is appropriate to the mood the ending is going for. Yeah, that rocking rhythm comes back here and it's so transformed and that it's now kind of comforting in a sad sort of way. You know, that dun, da dun, dun, da dun, dun, da dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's conveying that feeling of relief and, you know, kind of a return to calmness and, and gentleness, I guess. This is what we were talking about 
Goldsmith scoring what's not necessarily evident on the screen. It's like the spell has lifted off of Constable Evans and his mother. When they're stopped, they don't keep fighting at this point, and it's almost like the madness that had taken hold of them has dissipated here or something like that. And then when it's all over, you've got, at the end of this cue, a nice flute statement of the main theme to wrap everything up with a nice little bow. I forgot to note that the um, halting opening of this final cue plays as the dog turns out to be a real dog, and it's warning our hero, whose name is evading my memory right now because he's such a memorable character. But uh, but it turns out to be a real dog, and, uh, you know, he's... Uh, He's a good dog. He's like a kind of lassie, not a sinister dog. And he's informing about the need for him to go rescue his wife here, I guess. He never really looked like a sinister dog. Like, that's it's a pretty adorable no, dog no. all the way through. The music was, uh, well, the music and the screaming was... Those things were trying. And, you know, there are many things Jerry Goldsmith can do with his music. He cannot make a cute dog look not cute. <laughs> I'm sorry. He tried. And as David mentioned earlier, that and the previous two cues, abduction and fork and hook fight, are essentially part of one great big sequence that just cover a huge amount of territory musically, emotionally. It's a very impressive finish to what was already a pretty impressive score.
And I don't suppose there's a whole lot to say about the end credits cue, because as I think we mentioned earlier in the show, it is just a reprise of the car ride cue. Jeff, do you want to evaluate the film and score and give us a reductive number? So the episode itself is a mixed bag. I always find these hour-long shows from the 60s that aren't Star Trek tough to watch. They always seem to have a lot of filler while the atmosphere, particularly the opening, is is really cool, and the finale is pretty fantastic. The whole mystery uh, is, to me, not quite as gripping, maybe, as it should be. I, I guess I would give this uh, maybe a 7, 6 or a 7 as an episode. The score, though, is certainly one of my favorites of Goldsmith's television work. I think I would give it an 8. Oh, wow. You gave the episode a six and the score a nine last time. There you go. So I said a six or a seven. I was in the ballpark. The score, I I guess I would only give it an eight because to me, a 10 would be an incredible movie score. Right. I don't know for relegating this to, you know, specifically just television. I don't. Just kind of on its own merits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight or a nine. I really think it's fantastic. So are we saying six and eight? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, to me, like, <laughs> out of what, of 250 or 350 scores, whoever knows how <laughs> many with all the television. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't think I could rank this at the very tip top of all that output, but certainly it's among the stronger stuff in all of that. It's both intelligent and just listenable and lovely, which is a nice combo. Yeah. Yeah, I felt a little bit better about it being carried so strongly by the score, but I I felt like there were some good performances in it, you know, some good character actors tearing into the material they had. The mother is very memorable, the constable, the old man who's a victim at the beginning, and even characters in the pub, like the guy talking about his father dying. It really created a good sort of atmosphere of this town and culture for me. So I got into it. I was drawn in. Again, it was probably carried largely by Jerry, but I liked enough elements that I just kind of went with it, even though there were definite plot holes and things that didn't quite make sense if you thought about them more. I'm going to rate the episode a little bit lower than I did last time. Really? I I gave it a seven. That's because the music for me carries it so well. I think it kind of makes up for the deficiencies in a lot of ways, particularly at the ending. But the score for me is, I'm going to go with an 8.5 because I think this is some of his strongest work for television as well. And I just love the way he develops the main theme and some of the other ideas throughout the course of the score. Clark, where are you? Me, uh, me think episode okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm going to stick with my scores from the previous recording session. I think it's entirely fair that you guys have adjusted on these things because after you do have more time to sit with something, it may start tilting one direction or another a little more. And that happens to me all the time with different stuff. But I still basically feel the same way about this episode. It's got some interesting ideas, but I don't think it really works works for me in all of the major ways that it needs to work. My biggest issue with it, I think, is that the character motivations are basically incomprehensible much of the time. Uh, You know, uh, the the atmosphere and the music carry the episode up to a certain point, but when you really step back and think about it, it's very difficult to determine 
why so many of these people are doing much of what they're doing. And it's a tribute to Goldsmith that he's able to sort of, as David said earlier, spackle over that to the degree that he is at certain points. But I found the episode one of those hours of television that that's intriguing in theory in places. It has some interesting ideas, but the execution was pretty sloppy. And I don't know whether that was a result of, you know, a rushed TV production schedule or what, but... It just doesn't work that well for me. So I'm sticking with a five on that. The score I love. Uh, this is one of my favorite Goldsmith television scores that we've covered thus far. Ah. It has a wonderful main theme. It has some incredible action horror music towards the end of the episode. Pretty much everything in this score works quite well for me. There's interesting, not only interesting thematic ideas throughout it, but interesting instrumentation and orchestration throughout. It's just a fascinating piece of work. And yeah, I love it. I'd give it a nine. This one's certainly not as good as The Cheaters was because that had the advantage of over the 50 minutes having kind of four separate individual stories within it. I think certain thriller episodes feel like they're being stretched more than others. Maybe the majority of them feel like they're being stretched. I don't know. I haven't seen that many, but I definitely feel... Like, this is a weaker one than that episode, at least. You all should watch the very first one. Actually, I think it's kind of a crackerjack episode. In fact, its problem is it has so much to do that it, it almost ends too abruptly, like they ran out of time. But it's got a surprisingly complex film noir plot. And, you know, that's when it was a film. It justifies the runtime. Uh, that one absolutely does. And, of course, it's a pilot. They spent some time on it. They had time to write it. You know, they're going to sell the show on this. It's a good use of Leslie Nielsen before he was a comedy actor. If you want to see what Thriller can do, filling out 50 minutes, pop in. The, and I watched it just to say, what was Thriller like before it went to horror? And I just popped that one in, and it was a good one to start with. It makes these, and again, having listened to that director talk about how Thriller did have filler in its middle two acts sometimes, I actually bumped it up a little bit because Jeff's right about the first and last sections of it just being so nice looking and about that druid site being such a great image and even the hogwarts is a great image so to take that center section and say we're setting it in a pub it's pedestrian but it's still an effective pub i mean pubs were shot better in the basil rathbone sherlock holmes movies but but it's still it's not like you feel like we're on a high school set it still fits the film we're watching for the score i'm going to be the debbie downer on this well, I'm a Debbie Downer. I'm a 7.5. My reasoning is it has a lovely theme, like an absolutely lovely theme. I love the pitch bends. If what Tadlow released was the actual score, I would be at nines for it because that Tadlow thing just grabbed me and grabbed me and grabbed me every time it came back around on a spin. The isolated score, one, it is thinner and crisper, and in that sense, harsher in a way that works very well for the episode, on, so on the respect level. But as music, I prefer the way it sounds on Tadlow. Tadlow grabs me. The isolated score grabs me sometimes. I appreciate it most of the time. I don't think it is as sharp as the Cheater score in terms of its structure and what it's doing and how it's doing it, I think Cheaters is kind of a masterwork in that. So in terms of the respect, my respect is through the roof on Cheaters. 
in terms of enjoyment, you know, Love Thy Neighbor and Old Faces, both, whatever I think of the episodes, both of those sets of music just became these wonderful play and play again and play again and play again and play again, you know, for an hour straight, playing the same 10 minutes of music and enjoying it more every time I hit play again. And this didn't get there for me. Uh, I kept playing it and I kept enjoying it, and it, but it kept, it's kind of scattershot. So it's one of those where I like what it's doing a lot. I enjoy listening to it mostly a lot. So it's like a 7.5, which for my music rating so far, my two Gunsmoke scores are eights. The Invaders is a 7.5, and I like The Invaders. I like it the same amount I like The Invaders, though in completely different ways. But it's not where Old Faces and Love Thy Neighbor are as listening experiences. And it's not where The Cheaters is as a construction, as a piece of architecture. I think The Cheaters is right now the apex for him. So... For me, a 7.5, which again, in this crowd is pretty low, though still pretty a pretty nice rating for any piece of music. I listened to the Isolated all the way through, and right after it, I played the Tadlow, and going from the 17-minute full score to the 10-minute suite, it feels exactly right. It doesn't feel like he's misrepresenting the score, like he's putting too much of the action music in or too much of the suite. Theme. It's really a proper blend, I think. And really, really well presented, too. I mean, I played the first Thriller CD, and I'm listening to music that I knew was really stark, and I have a hard time with stark music. So I just went, well, okay, I, I bought it to support, and I bought it because it's Goldsmith, and I'm going to play it and say I've heard it, and it just captured me from beginning to end. It's a lovely CD. It just repeated. I didn't know which ones I was listening to anymore because I just didn't care. It was, it was, it's really just a lovely, lovely stuff. For my sensibilities, I guess it's not my favorite television thing he's done so far. I still like The Big Tall Wish from The Twilight Zone a little better, but that's just probably because it's a little more to my taste. But in terms of thriller... I'd say this is probably my favorite thriller score so far. I think I like it a little bit better than The Cheaters overall, even though that one has maybe a little more variety to it, understandably, since there's multiple stories. And that has a really great theme too, but it's pretty much confined to one of the segments. Whereas for this one, we have an amazing long-lined theme, which has a bridge or two that sometimes comes in as well, even though it's already a fully formed melody on its own. And it is so malleable. It can play in full statements, in short little act-outs effectively, and it gets treated so differently each time. So, I feel like it's just a great example of Jerry's ability to vary his material. That really iconic pitch-bend idea, which, like Jeff said, he probably didn't invent. I'm sure those existed in other scores. I'm, I'm actually remembering now that Alfred Newman did some of that kind of stuff, I believe, for the Native American music in Captain from Castile. He, he used some of those techniques, and I'm sure other composers like Bernard Herrmann did. But in terms of the Goldsmith sound with it that I'm familiar with from The Shadow and The Edge and other things, this feels like an important early appearance of the idea. And, you know, the, the rhythmic ideas in the score and the, the action music, everything all together, there's such variety of impressive material in this that I'm going to land at an 8.5 pretty close to Jeff. My estimation of the score increased hearing the film recording 
the tableau is wonderful, but there's just kind of an energy and immediacy and grittiness to the original recording. And thankfully, on this isolated score track on the DVDs, there are some effects, but they're fairly minimal for this score. You know, there's an occasional door opening or some footsteps or something. But for the most part, it's less intrusive than some of the other music and effects tracks we've had to listen to. And I can, for the most part, enjoy it as a straightforward, straight-through listen. You know, I still long for a music-only version to come out for the tapes to be discovered at Universal and released in a box set someday. But I'm really able to enjoy the music and effects track on this one. Yavar, can you tell me what my numbers were? Yep. Uh, you gave the episode, same as Clark, you gave him a 5 and you gave the score a 7.5, so you were the least enthusiastic of us all about the score. Uh, so wait, who changed? You, Jeff changed a little. I stayed the same. Clark yeah. stayed the same. Did you change, Javar? He changed the episode score. I changed my episode score just down half a point. So Jeff gave the episode a 6.5, uh, and then you and Clark gave it, gave it a 5, and I gave it a 6.5, an average of 5.75 for the episode. Okay. For the score, Jeff changed his somewhere in between an 8 and a 9. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so we'll call it an 8.5 for Jeff. David, you gave it a 7.5. I gave the score an 8.5, and Clark gave it a 9. 8.375 for the score average. We arrive at a Goldsmith ratio of 1.46. Basically, we can say uh, Goldsmith's score is about one and a half times as good as the episode. So if you want to hear the full music and effects track on your own, you know, outside of the context of this podcast, you can get the excellent DVD release of Thriller, which has an effects track for all of the Jerry Goldsmith episodes and many of the others as well. Maybe none of the Pete Rugolo ones. Uh, It is an increasingly hard to find and it will continue to be increasingly harder to find because it was never a big hit. And when it went out of print, it went out of print. And so it depends on the waves of used purchases. Sometimes they're low, sometimes they're high. So really your best way to access this music is with Tadlow. What I would say about Tadlow, it's one of those cases where representing the score isn't a bad word. Like it can be. You know, when you have a 30-minute CD of a two-hour-long score and they say, we represented it well, you're like, that's not what we're buying. With Tadlow, it is what you're buying. You're buying a representation because they want to get six episodes on one disc. That black dog cue, I kind of miss. Sure. But Lee did a really good job of selecting cues that were different from the other ones with not a lot of the more similar ones repeated. So I'd say as far as forming a suite of the essential parts of this score, Lee did a really, really good job on this one. There's nothing that, you know, I miss. Like there were two or three pieces from The Poisoner where I was like, oh, that one got left off. But that's not the case here. I listened to The Complete Isolated, which is 17 minutes. Then I listened to The Complete Tadlow, which is 10. Then I separated out just the stuff exclusive to the isolated, like the seven minutes of music that didn't get carried over. And listening to that seven minutes of music that Lee didn't use, nothing jumped out at me as like, oh, here's the diamond. So the Tadlow is just wonderful. It's been designed to have a sound that is good for that CD presentation while still being very faithful to the vibe of the of the episode. And I think it is. I think it's very punchy when the show is punchy. I think it pushes some things down at the show forefronts in an effort to be more flowing from cue to cue. 
But boy, at the end, when it gets punchy, it outpunches the isolated score, I think. It's not as crisp, but it's more robust. Listeners, since there are two volumes now, and there may eventually be three, this score is included on the first Tadlow Thriller album. Right. Just the whole idea that this was released, that, that they did two albums of this and maybe we'll do more. Yeah. And that it's because of the kind of chamber size ensemble that it's something that they can afford to do and, and make money off of. I love the presentation and I'm really happy to have them. Of course, I would love to see the original tapes uncovered. It's, I think I said last time, and I wish I knew who was talking about this, but it seems to me that someone was on the cusp of doing the thriller Goldsmith scores years ago and put, you know, putting out the tapes and that those did exist, but it was quite a long time ago, and I'm not sure why it didn't happen, because it's universal, right? Yeah, Review is owned by Universal. Yeah, and when I, I spoke with Robert Townsend, he seemed fairly sure that they probably did survive in the vaults. I mean, he didn't say for definite, but he seemed to think there was no reason why Universal wouldn't still have them in their yeah. vaults. Yeah, television is really the final frontier for all this as far as Goldsmith is concerned. It's incredible to me if you think about the fact that, you know, there's obviously a number of exceptions and things that have not managed to get out. But when you think about the percentage of his movie scores that have actually been put out, it's incredible. It is. And also incredible is the sheer amount of television scoring that he's done and a lot of that has been put out but uh, i don't know that they've really even scratched the surface of all that material it's unfortunate because the demographic is really kind of dying out because television is more obscure it's harder to sell i think than movie scores which is weird in a way because television can impact people and be more of a source of nostalgia than some movies because people were watching this stuff as kids and seeing it every day. It does move people and motivate people to buy it. And obviously, like La La Land Records still puts out quite a lot of television music. And I worked on some music from this period that I hope to get out in the next few months. This stuff still exists and it's still viable in the near term for people to buy. So I, I hope that there's more serious work done in unearthing all this because, you know, Goldsmith was one of the most prolific, as far as I know, maybe he is the most prolific American film composer, at least as far as doing the work on the level that he did. And I would love to see, you know, everything he wrote put out. Uh, here, here. Aha, you too are a bottle cap collector. Yep, yep. totally. <laughs> when the bottle caps are so great, you know, Yeah, come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, just this past year, we got an amazing sounding release of his pilot score for Archer. Yep. If that can come out, yeah. I would think anything can come out. This obscure show that lasted for six episodes back in the 70s, and we haven't been able to even locate the episode for later on when we get to it in the Goldsmith Odyssey. So if you're listening to this and you know you have a recording of that episode that Jerry Goldsmith scored of Archer, we want to see it. But if that can come out, then surely there is a little bit of hope for Thriller, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us a second time to discuss this score, Jeff. We really appreciate your time, and uh, and it's been a blast. Uh, it was my pleasure again. Yeah, I appreciate your word choices. I don't know how else to say it, but uh, I've learned vocabulary from you in a nice way. Well, you're, you're lucky I had any left after the second <laughs> time. And your willingness to stick with us is very impressive. Thank you for that. All right, so thank you to the listeners as well for joining us on the Goldsmith Odyssey. We hope you'll subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And if you really want to help us out and help us reach other listeners, consider writing us an iTunes review, a, a positive one, I hope. If you have any other feedback, um, including constructive criticism and the like, please send us an email to mail at goldsmithodyssey.com. We read all the emails and uh, I believe so far we've replied to every single one. So, we really appreciate the feedback back and love hearing from our listeners. All right, what are we doing next time on the Goldsmith Odyssey? Just a, an observation. I I can't tell if he's still here or not, Jeff, because his picture is still on the thingy. Um, he was terrific tonight. Yeah. Yeah.